can be seated. We are finishing up today a short stint um, talking about our vision as a community. Um, every week we say it at the very end that we are called to reveal the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. And we've reflected on what it means to reveal the kingdom of Jesus. Last week, Cassie um, reflected on what it means for us to do it together. And today, I want to talk through what it means to be the people of God here in Kansas City. So it'll be a fun day, appropriate day, as we think about the Chiefs and all that's going on in our city. I'm pretty good at small talk. Like, I'm not great, but I'm pretty good at small talk. Like any good Midwesterner, I can lament the weather and I can gush over the weather in any given circumstance. I can make weather go a long way. I love talking and hearing about people's family. I genuinely, when I ask you how work is, I'm genuinely interested in the rhythms of your workplace. I'm interested in you hearing about that manager who's been a little annoying lately. I'm interested in the change of schedule. I'm interested in your life. I'm pretty good at small talk. Again, I'm not the best, but I'm pretty good. Some of you are like thinking back to our interactions. And you're like, he wasn't that great. I am pretty good at small talk. Um, but whenever I ask the question, how is work? When I'm not in spaces like this, when I'm not amongst our community and I ask the question, what does work look like for you? I always hesitate and I, I'm a little scared of the follow-up question. Because the question is always, and what do you do? And it's not that I'm ashamed of my faith. It's not that I'm ashamed of talking about Christianity. It's that I've had defenses pulled up in front of my eyes. It's that I've felt the air change as I mention, yeah, I, I pastor a local community. I've felt the palpable tension of a barista or a waitress or just someone I've met on the street go, oh, end of conversation. There's this barista I've gotten to know because I spend far too much time and far too much money at his coffee shop. And we have this rapport going where we'll joke back and forth. And he hasn't asked me what I do. He just sees me on my laptop and people coming in and out and talking to me. He hasn't asked me what I do, but I know the question is coming. And, I, and a little bit, I'm, I'm dreading that question. We might live in the Bible Belt, but at times it feels more like the land of church fallout. We might live in a land where everybody can quickly tell us the story of Noah, but they can also name the traumas and the brokenness of their past experiences in religious communities. As sociologists put it, we have moved from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. Now, by that, I do not mean that America was a Christian nation. It's my belief that Christian is a noun and not an adjective. Um, people are Christians. Nations are not. More on that here in a second. But what I mean is over the last two centuries of our nation's history, of our culture, 
it could be assumed that most people had a cursory understanding of the Christian faith and that most people you met on the street would say they believe in God, they have some kind of knowledge of Jesus, and they could probably tell you what church they went to. For the most part, this was the reality for about two centuries. But over the last two decades, the West, in particular the United States, has shifted from a majority Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. And our city, Kansas City, is no exception to that. As our team prepared to do ministry here in Kansas City, we did our best to research the spiritual, religious, and cultural environment that we were stepping into. And we made three observations about the environment that was Kansas City so that we could be better informed in our ministry. We could be better informed as we tried to be faithful followers of Jesus. And here are our three observations. First, the population of Kansas City while having some kind of biblical knowledge, has very little understanding of the person of Jesus. Many in our community might say, I believe in a God of love, but that God of love is totally disconnected from the incarnation of Jesus. Saying that you believe in a God of love is a good start. But when it is the only thing used to describe the invisible deity of the universe, it means very little. For many, saying I believe in a God of love typically equates to a donation to a nonprofit at the end of the year. It equates to trying to be a little bit nicer to the people you meet, but for the most part, it doesn't change a whole lot. It does nothing to deal with human corruption, evil, or suffering. It doesn't do anything to renovate the soul or compel me to change my behaviors. I could give more examples, but it suffices to say that many of our neighbors are simply confused about who Jesus is. In part, this is a crisis of discipleship. For too long, following Jesus was separate from the gospel. The gospel is not about where you go when you die. It is about taking Jesus' invitation to a new kingdom, to a new way of life, and living it out. It's an invitation into a new kingdom. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about what it is to reveal the kingdom of Jesus and this is Jesus' articulation of the gospel. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message was that the reign of God is here and now. And we are to look at it as everything we have ever longed for. Augustine once said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The kingdom of God is what your heart longs for. Therefore, rethink everything you know and commit to learning the way of Jesus. 
The gospel cannot be separated from the story of Jesus, but too often in our city, too many of our people have raised their hands, prayed a prayer at age 12, and that was the extent of their discipleship. The extent of their walk with Jesus was a night at that one place, that one time where they were going through something really difficult, and that was where their discipleship to Jesus ended. Our city has a low understanding of the person of Jesus, high biblical story knowledge, low understanding of the story of Jesus. Without a robust understanding of Christ, Christianity just becomes a wellness routine. Yeah, I eat clean, I do therapy, I have a workout partner, and I Sabbath. Like, those are all good things, but Jesus is not your wellness routine. Showing up to church is not a part of just being healthier. Christ is inviting us into a new kingdom and into a new way of life. We discovered our city has a high biblical knowledge and a low understanding of Jesus. The second challenge we encountered was... The synchronism of Christianity and nationalism. This is the belief that America is uniquely blessed by God and particular values must be upheld in our culture through influence and power. The emphasis of this religion is not following Jesus but maintaining power at all costs. Many in our city continue to struggle with this worldview. It's a nostalgic worldview. It believes we must go back to being a Christian nation at any cost. While there are many problems within this particular viewpoint, uh, one of the most prominent is that the values professed um, aren't as Christian as they seem to be. If you were to listen to our Christian brothers and sisters from South America or from Africa or from the Middle East, they do not see America as a Christian nation. They do not see a community living out the virtues of sacrificial love and humble service. They see past our Christian vocabulary and see a land of greed, materialism, broken families, and vanity. People move to America for cars and televisions, not for the gospel. This synchronizing of American exceptionalism and Christian vocabulary, what we know as the religious right or evangelicalism, as it's now come to be known, continue to be a barrier for many genuine seekers in our city. It continues to be a barrier that many who are genuinely open to the gospel can't see past. This isn't to say that the right is all wrong and the left is better. That's a whole different conversation. It's just that the left isn't branding themselves with the Bible and with Christianity. This American nationalism, this Christian nationalism, continues to be a barrier for many who desire to genuinely follow Jesus. And then third, the population of our city and our neighborhood continues to grow in its distrust of religious institutions. 
our neighborhood's thoughts, this neighborhood's thoughts on religious institutions are complicated and painful. At a national level, we continue to see prominent Christian leaders fall. And then locally, I've sat with many of you who've shared your wounds that you received at the hands of a religious leader. I've sat with many of you who talked about someone who used Jesus not as a healing balm, but as a weapon. Using the scripture not as the way to life abundantly, but as chains. I've talked with many of you, and you know it to be the case. I could spend a lot of time on this point, and we talk about it regularly. We, we have to be a community that does better. We have to be a community that loves better. Right before we launched this church, uh, we did a door hanger campaign. You know that thing where you, you print out a door hanger and you go door by door. Some of you helped us out with that. Um, Honestly, we were pretty naive at the time, and we thought, you know, maybe someone will see this and they'll show up. I don't know that I've met a single person who's like, yeah, I saw your door hanger, all 2,000 of them, and I showed up to church because of it. Uh, we were naive. <laughs> but uh, while Cassie and I were handing out uh, the door hangers, we were going door to door one uh, Tuesday morning. We both just, you know, threw in some headphones because it was middle of the day and nobody was home. Um, and I, I ran up to one door, and at the exact time I was reaching to put it on, the door opened up, and I'm like face-to-face -face, um, with this older lady in our, our community, and it shocked both of us, and I'm like fumbling to get my headphones out of my, my ears, and uh, I, I kind of throw the door hanger into her hands, and I'm like, oh, we're, we're starting a new church. And she goes, oh, why do we need another church? And then she proceeds to tell me how she's tried every church in Midtown. And he's, she's like, the liberal churches are bigoted one way, and the, the right churches are bigoted a different way. All of them are bigots. Like, you, didn't you just answer your question? Why do we need another church? It's that our institutions have continued to fail us. And that's not me saying that there are not good churches in Kansas City. I can give you... Dozens of beautiful, welcoming communities in our neighborhood and in our city. But we continue to need to address institutional problems within the way we organize ourselves. And I genuinely pray if this community ever becomes more about us or about our brand, that a new church would come along and disrupt our status quo. May we be an institution, a community that is continually approaching the throne of God and saying, Lord, search our hearts, know us. While many in our city are genuinely worshiping the name of Jesus today, I do not think that's the majority. As much as I love the Chiefs, I think there is far more hype and far more worship around Patrick Mahomes this morning than is around Jesus. And I say that as someone who's about to put on a Chiefs shirt right after this. I don't mean that to say it isn't good and it isn't okay, but I think there's more worship around that than around the name of Jesus. In my lifetime... 
my mere 30 years on earth, faithful Christians have moved from the majority to the minority, from the center to the fringe, from the well thought of to the weird. When someone asks you what you're up to right before you come to church, do you catch yourself? Do you hesitate to answer because you're not sure the response that will come? I think it's important for us to take an honest look at our city. Even though we are in the Bible Belt, those who faithfully follow the way of Jesus are not the majority. Rather, we are a minority. And I hope it's clear my suggestion is not that we need to go back to something. My suggestion is not that we need to go back to the good, good old days. Rather, I'm attempting to name a feeling of cultural displacement that we feel. This idea of displacement or exile is one that cuts through the entire biblical narrative. Almost the entirety of scripture has this idea weaved in and out of it. And as we turn to Jeremiah's letter to an exiled people, I think this wily prophet named Jeremiah has a lot of advice that we can hear, that we can apply to our own cultural displacement. So we're going to take the next few minutes. I don't think I have a lot of time. We'll take a few minutes, and we're just going to focus on Jeremiah's letter to an exiled people. In roughly 600 BC, the Israelites were taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire shows up, they decimate Jerusalem, and they take the smartest, the brightest, the leaders, and they march them 700 miles across the Middle Eastern desert to a new land far from home. Home, family, temple, culture, and language, everything familiar left behind as they arrive in Babylon. The Israelites find that, found themselves in a strange land, disconnected from everything they held dear. If you can, imagine you are forced to spend an extended amount of time in a place you do not like, with people you do not like. If you can imagine that, I'm not sure many of you have any experiences like that, but if you can imagine spending your time in a place you don't like with people you don't like, I think you begin to wrap your head around the feeling of these Israelites, that they have been taken away from everything familiar. And in their longing for home, in their ache to be back in the land of their ancestors, they slip into self-pity and discontentment. And the religious leaders that were brought with them nurtured this discontentment. These false prophets made a living, inspiring self-pity and nostalgia. They claimed to have dreams from God, promising that the, exile, the exiles would soon return to the land of their ancestors. They peddled nostalgia and fostered self-pity. And then one day, two messengers arrive from Jerusalem with a letter from the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
the strangest set of advice that I could ever imagine is about to come. Build houses and make yourself at home. The situation is not temporary. It is not a camping trip. It is time to move out of the tents. Dig foundations. Construct a home. This might not be your favorite place, but make the best life you can where you are. He says, put in gardens and eat what grows in that country. Enter into the rhythms of the season. Take part in the local economy. Get your hands in Babylonian soil. Learn some new recipes. Break a sweat. Invest into the ground you are standing on. Jeremiah writes, marry and have children. Encourage your children to marry and have children so that they'll thrive in the country and not waste away. If you need that explained, talk to me later. The people of this place are not beneath you. They are not above you. They are your equals. Develop relationships. Engage in friendships. Create a thick web of interconnectedness for you cannot be the person God wants you to be in isolation. Make yourself at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. The ESV says, seek the welfare of this city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find welfare. If you're looking at the sermon notes online, I annotated it, but that word welfare there might be one familiar to you. In the original Hebrew, it's a term shalom. It's a play on words. In the shalom of the city, you will find shalom. Now, we oftentimes think of shalom as peace which for Westerners is typically thought of as the absence of conflict. But, but for the ancient Hebrews, shalom was much more holistic than that. Shalom is wholeness. It is this idea of a vibrant and healthy community that is driven forward with divine purpose toward human flourishing. Shalom is the blossoming of life where humanity and God are in deep relationship. It is a society living in the goodness of God where all are taken care of. Pray for Babylon. Pray for your captor that it might find shalom. For in the city's shalom, you will find shalom. And looking out for the good of the city, you will discover good for yourself. That is what it means to reveal the kingdom of Jesus together in Kansas City. To give everything we are to help life blossom in this city. To give everything we are to see shalom happen in Kansas City. It is not a Christian commune on the plains of Kansas churning butter and listening to Chris Tomlin. It is not a well-planned political campaign that promises to rid our streets of crime and put prayer back into school. 
It is organizing our lives in such a way that we are working toward the healing of our neighbor, the healing of our neighborhoods, and the healing of our city, all in the name of Jesus. May we learn to be locals, those who know the nuances and the complexities of our city, and to love it with our whole heart. For some of us, this is a transistory city. This is a place where you are, you are stopping for school or for a season or for a time. Do not be caught up with the false dreams of, I'll do that next city. I'll do that in the next place. Whatever time you have here and whatever time you have now, invest in the ground you're standing on. No matter how long you are here, make your goal to miss Kansas City. The friends, the relationships, and the life you have made. I'll regularly meet someone, just by nature of who we are as a community, I'll regularly meet people who are here for maybe, you know, three, four, five, six months. And I will always say my goal is to make your leaving as hard as possible. Not because the logistics are difficult, not because moving is a pain, but because you have so many people you're connected with. Because you feel like you've sweat and bled for the ground of Kansas City, it's hard to move on. I pray that that might be all of our experience. That we love the ground we stand on. That we become locals. You know, the locals are the people who know the sandwich shop in the forgotten corner of the city. The locals are the people who know the best time to make their way across town. They know the best time to make the reservation at that restaurant. Let us be locals who know the heartbeat of our city, who know its nuances and its rhythm and its cadence. Let us learn to love the ground we stand on. Let us love it with everything we are. I'm struck by how ordinary Jeremiah's list is. Live in a house, plant a garden, get a job, create relationships, raise a family, and pray. Our calling as exiles is not to the extraordinary or the astonishing. It is to see the raw materials of life as opportunities for God's grace, mercy, and love to flow. It is to see my house my garden, my table, my, friends, my friendships, my relationships, my family, and my prayers as the stuff God is using to build his kingdom. Worship team, if you want to join me on this stage, this is not a call to add a bunch of stuff to your life. I know I, I have a bad habit of like, let's talk about all the things you need to add to life. And I'm consistently being reminded that God uses the very ordinary stuff, the stuff of homemaking, of gardening, of family life, and prayer as the stuff he uses to bless our city. I think that God is working to reveal himself in the everyday and ordinary elements of life on planet Earth. This is not a call to reorient your schedule around spending six hours in prayer. This is a call 
to see the cadences of your life in this city as opportunity. To see that little conversation with a coworker over the Keurig. Who's gonna go first? See that as a moment to speak value into someone's life. That little Ikea table that sits in the corner of your apartment, that's not just decoration, that is a place where food and friendship and relationships can be built. See your home, your apartment, however big or however small, as the place in which God's love and goodness, his hospitality can be felt. It is to see our jobs, our workplaces, our nine to five as the place in which we get to invest into our city. Jeremiah's advice to the exiled people goes, and if you've ever graduated from high school, you've heard this verse before. <laughs> for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I don't think Jeremiah means that everything you do will prosper will be blessed or will be successful. I think this is a promise that God's promised future is better than anything we can think of for ourselves. And then he goes on to promise that wherever we find ourselves, our God is right there with us. Whatever cultural displacement we feel, whatever exile we experience, whatever isolation and alienation may come, we may search the raw materials of our life and we will find him in our midst. I think one of the most basic practices of being a Christian is searching for the activity of God in the places no one has ever looked before. To look into the everyday components of our life on earth and ask God, where are you at work? And he will be found. The reality is, is no one has ever looked in the spaces you occupy. You occupy a unique space on the street you live on, with the friends you do life with, for the relationships you have, with the workplace you're in. You occupy a unique space and you have the unique opportunity to say, God, where are you at work in this? Amid our unkempt houses with overflowing dishes and dirty laundry, our God is there to show us what home feels like. Amid our nine to five, our grocery store runs, our meager cabinets in our Ikea dinner tables, our God is there to show us what life to the fullest is. Amid our messy lives, our sexual tensions, our material marital spats and parenting mistakes, he is there to show us what love feels like. Amid our work for this city, as neighbors, as baristas, as entrepreneurs, freelancers, caretakers, and students, 
as librarians, custodians, managers, as cashiers, receptionists, and nurses, our God is there waiting to reveal his kingdom. The call to reveal the kingdom of God together in Kansas City is not to move somewhere else. It's not to do something extraordinary or spectacular. It is to see God at work in the everyday. It is to see God at work in whatever place we find ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the God who promises to be present with your children. That wherever we find ourselves, you are there. As we go from this place, may our attention be fixed on the ways in which your mercy your grace and your love is being expressed in the everyday ordinary things. May we see our houses as spaces in which your hospitality can be experienced. May we see our gardens and our jobs as ways in which we are investing into our community. May we see our relationships, our family as the space in which your love is being seen and demonstrated. May we seek the shalom of this city. For in its shalom, we will find shalom. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen and amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.